There are now 250 episodes of this show. Oh, we know. We had to sit down and take a deep breath ourselves. Which turned out to be a bad idea, considering our local air is full of smoke and ash, thanks to a series of wildfires in our area this last week. We're all fine, thanks for asking. No worries here. Though it did mean we had to miss getting an episode out to you thanks to the general disruption. We're used to this sort of thing around here, though. As you can tell if you listen to our earlier episode about wildfires from July of 2018. So, no need for us to repeat that here. You do sort of have to admire 2nd century BCE Roman Marcus Licinius Crassus, though. Born in 115 BCE, Crassus was a general and politician dubbed the richest man in Rome. His main claim to fame, among other things, was in putting down the slave revolt led by some guy named Spartacus. From there on, his political and military career really took off, and it wasn't long before he was helping to transform Rome from a republic to an empire. Together with Pompey and Julius Caesar, whom he helped bankroll, he formed the First Triumvirate, an on-again, off-again alliance that ruled Rome for a while. Crassus made his money by speculating in real estate, He was born to plebeian parents who, while highly respected, were not particularly wealthy or well-to-do. His father was a senator, but this didn't mean they were moneyed, though Crassus's family line is often mistaken for a similar offshoot of the family that was very well off to begin with. After his father and brothers were either killed or passed away in various battles around the Republic, Crassus married his brother's widow and took off to Hispania where he lived for three years raised a small army, and extorted money from entire local cities to pay for his various little military campaigns. Then he went to Greece after a brief stop in Africa and took part in a civil war there where he pretty much came out the hero. When the commander, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, began auctioning off the property of the defeated on the cheap, Crassus started buying it up, all part of a program to disenfranchise all those who had opposed Sulla and to help spread the blame for the whole thing to those who profited from it. Crassus wasn't terribly bothered about how he got his money. According to some, he wasn't above adding names to the list of the vanquished just so he could acquire their property for himself. Pliny the Elder, that chronicler of only true facts, estimated Crassus's fortune at something north of 200 million sesterciae, while Plutarch put the upper figure at 7,100 talents, which if converted to gold weight, makes Crassus worth about $11 billion in today's money. Which is just the amount of money it takes to make a rich man look around himself and consider his place in this world. Or indeed, in the next. Charitable giving starts to look like a good idea that might be helpful not only to your fellow man, but also in getting you through the gates of your favorite afterlife and you'd be forgiven for thinking this is what was going through Crassus's mind after his next move. See, Crassus had noticed that Rome had some sort of uncontrolled fire nearly every day, often more than one. People would lose life and home as their property burned to the ground on a near daily basis with only a poorly organized group of your neighbors to do much about it and they were mostly interested in keeping the fire off their property rather than putting yours out. Often entire buildings were raised with no hope of saving them, 
because there was no organized fire department responsible for putting out the flames. So Crassus decided to start the very first organized fire brigade ever recorded. All on his own. He got together 500 men, and upon the shout of fire going up anywhere in the city, they would rush to the scene ready to extinguish the flames. And then they would do nothing. Nothing at all. That is, unless the owner agreed to sell the now-burning property to Crassus for a pittance. If they refused to sell, they got to stand around with 500 able-bodied men watching their homes burn to the ground. If they agreed to sell, the fire crew would spring into action, extinguish the flames, and save as much as they could. After which, Crassus would repair or rebuild the building and then lease the renovated buildings back to their former owners at a profit. And if that isn't the definition and origin of the word crass, it ought to be. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. You'll be unsurprised to learn that Crassus's methods turned out to not be very effective at actually fighting fires and preventing them from doing damage. It seems privately organized and very self-interested firefighters are the wrong sort of firefighters to keep the flames spreading from building to building and basically leveling entire neighborhoods. Especially if that is exactly what you want in order to speculate cheaply in real estate. Which is why, finally, in 6 CE, the Emperor Augustus decided enough was enough. By then, Rome had seen so many fires and conflagrations, large disasters fires, that the Emperor himself was afraid the whole thing was going to burn to cinders around his ears. Something had to be done to try to keep Rome safe, and Augustus had worked out exactly how to do it. By assessing a 4% sales tax on slaves, he was able to fund something called the Vigilis Urbani, which means basically the city watch. They were a public institution and were solely responsible for fighting fires in and around Rome and, eventually, other parts of the Roman Empire. Augustus chose as his model for the Little Bucket Fellows, as they were nicknamed, the Fire Brigades of Alexandria, Egypt. And sure, we just got done telling you that Crassus had the first organized fire brigade ever recorded, but that doesn't mean there weren't earlier firefighting efforts going on. The key word is organized. Prior to that, things were pretty haphazard. The reason Alexandria gets the nod, though, as a model is because of one man who thought that a bit more could be done than just shuffling buckets of water back and forth. Tisibius was a 3rd century BCE Greek living in Alexandria in Ptolemaic Egypt. He was an inventor and mathematician, and he had two very specific areas of interest. He was fascinated with the properties and uses of compressed air and the elasticity of gases, both of which he combined to create the thing he is most famous for, or would be if anyone remembered that he invented it, the pipe organ. And the reason the pipe organ works is because of the thing Tisibius really specialized in and became the father of pneumatics. Pneumatics is a field of engineering that specializes in the compression and usage of gases to do work. In its simplest form, think of it like this. If you blow up a balloon, it's full of air. But importantly, it is full of air under pressure, 
because the latex is constantly trying to return to its original size and shape, squeezing the air inside the balloon. This creates a certain amount of force, depending on the original size of the balloon and the amount of air in it. This force can be used to do work. Most of the time it's a weird squealing sound if you constrict the opening and let the air escape, but several children's toys also use balloons to cause them to move, like balloon-powered race cars and a balloon-powered propeller that flies into the air as the balloon returns to normal pressure. This is simple pneumatics. Compressed gases can do work. They can inflate tires, spray paint, run drills and jackhammers, and if routed through a series of tubes of different lengths with an opening cut into them that resonates with the flow, play music. Just like the weird squeaking noise you get from a deflating balloon when you pinch the opening just right. One of the other things Tsebius discovered you can do with compressed air was put out fires. See, pretty much up to that point, firefighting had been conducted just as you imagine in your head when you think old-timey firefighting. Someone shouts fire, a bunch of people inside the burning house run out, and along with the neighbors who don't want their house to burn, they make a line to the nearest horse trough and start passing buckets of water back and forth, mostly trying to keep the fire from spreading without much hope of actually extinguishing the flames. Well, along came Tisebius, and he worked out that if you had, say, a sealed barrel of water that you placed two pipes into, and then blew or pumped air down one pipe, a jet of water would come out the other pipe as the air forced the water up and out. That was incredibly handy. But what made it really handy was the next step. If you connected things up properly and rapidly moved the lid up and down inside the barrel, you could cause a steady stream of water to shoot out of one pipe under air pressure and to flow in from the other pipe on the upstroke. All of a sudden, you had a water pump and nozzle that could be taken to and pointed at any convenient fire that might happen to be lying about. Now you could stop a fire, rather than just managing the damage, with the new fire pumps. This was one of the innovations that Augustus wanted to bring to the Empire, updated and current equipment. Sure, there were still bucket brigades, that's how the City Watch got their nickname, but now there were also giant water syringes and fire pumps, and even fire engines. That's right, fire engines. See, it didn't take the Romans long to work out how to improve the basic fire pump by first making it larger, and second making it more portable. Portable enough that it could bring some of its own water with it. They developed a double-action pump that was pulled by horses and sat in a small reservoir of water. When the pump showed up, it could set up immediately and start spraying water, while the bucket line changed from throwing water at the fire to throwing more water in the pump wagon to keep it going. And those weren't the only innovations of the City Watch, of course. There were at least 600 members of the Watch, and they were divided up and stationed in seven watch houses throughout Rome. From these, they would patrol each of the 14 sectors of Rome at night, looking out for newly started fires. And, since you already had healthy, responsible citizens out patrolling anyway, it wasn't long before the Watch became a de facto Roman police force, looking out for burglaries and other crimes at the same time. But, all of these innovations essentially had to be rediscovered and re-implemented because so much was lost after the fall of Rome. It took a few hundred years for everyone to catch up again, but when they did, things really started to take off when it came to fighting fires. By the end of the medieval period, things were more or less back to where they had started, and fires could more or less regularly be extinguished before they raised entire buildings. 
Unfortunately, nothing could really stand up to the Great Fire of London in 1666. The fire burned for four days, having started in a bakery in the center of London. It reached temperatures in excess of 1,200 degrees and destroyed more than 13,000 homes. And as big as that tragedy was, the real problem was yet to come. See, no one was insured. As no doubt interesting as the complete history of insurance might be, we'll try to confine ourselves to just the relevant bits. The basic premise of insurance is this. Things can be lost or destroyed. By taking out an insurance policy on those things, you are basically saying that you bet something will happen to them, while the person or company insuring you bets it won't. If you turn out to be wrong, you get to keep making the bet on the thing while your insurer keeps collecting your money. If your insurer turns out to be wrong, they agree to pay out a large sum of money to help replace or repair the thing. The more likely the thing being insured is to be lost or damaged, the more you have to pay to make the bet. And the harder it is to replace or repair the thing, the more you have to pay as well. So insurance companies make their money by knowing exactly how likely a thing is to be lost or damaged and how hard it is to replace the thing, all while adjusting your bet and theirs accordingly. While the idea of insurance goes back to beyond recorded history, modern insurance really gets its start with sailing ships and the cargoes they carried. See, what used to happen was that you would load up your favorite sailing vessel with your favorite very expensive cargo and send it sailing off to be attacked by pirates, lost in a storm, sunk by your enemies, or wrecked on any one of the several thousand surprise rocks and reefs that are common in every ocean. Well, that's not what you send it out to do. You send it out to arrive at a different port where they needed what you had and you could make money off it. But as often as not, one of the other things happened instead, and you lost everything, including the money you had invested in the cargo. And people were getting pretty tired of it. So several folks with lots of money got together and said, if we all give each other some money now, we can spread the risk between us, thereby making it less risky for any one of us if a cargo is lost. All the funds we've collected can go into a pool from which we can pay back any losses. But I bet we won't lose anything anyway, and so there's no real risk to us at all. So let's all give me money. And they did. And it turned out there were just enough cargoes that made it through unscathed versus those that were lost that it was profitable for those on the insuring side. It wasn't long before the insurance game was the way to go for everyone concerned. But it was mostly confined to insuring cargo. No one thought about all the things we use insurance for these days. Until the Great Fire of London, that is. Suddenly, lots of people had losses they would rather have been insured against, and that included the people in charge of running and rebuilding what was left of London, which wasn't a whole lot. Everything had to come out of someone's own pocket if they wanted their homes, businesses, churches, and more back. But the Great Fire of London was a sort of once-in-a-lifetime event. Given the way architect Christopher Wren was rebuilding things, it was unlikely that such a catastrophic event would occur again. And a lot of people, people who hadn't previously been interested in things like insurance, had suddenly thought it would be really handy if someone else could help pay for all the damage. It suddenly looked very attractive to people with lots of money already to start up insurance companies that specialized in property insurance, fires in particular. Risk was low, interest was high. There was money to be made selling insurance to people who didn't want to lose everything again, and it seemed very unlikely that such a major event would repeat. You might lose the oh no it won't bet once in a while, 
But given the number of people who thought, oh yes it will, and wanted to be insured, any single minor event was unlikely to bankrupt the insurer. So in 1681, economist Nicholas Barbon and 11 of his friends created the Insurance Office for Houses, the very first fire insurance company. Nicholas Barbon was baptized as, and you should probably buckle in for this one, If Jesus Christ had not died for thee, thou hadst been damned barebone. And the only explanation for this is that he was born into a family that believed in a rather extreme form of Puritanism to a father with an equally quadruple-barreled hortatory name. When the Great Fire of London had finally been extinguished, Nicholas, who at some point wisely changed his name, decided there was more money to be made in the building trade than in his former vocation as a medical doctor and switched professions. His cavalier attitude to local laws and regulations, and a willingness to simply ignore the fact that perfectly fine buildings still existed in places he wanted to build so he just knocked them down, meant that he found it quite easy to rapidly build large tracts of housing and other buildings to the west of the city of London, and he swiftly became the most prominent London builder of his age. It wasn't until the lawyers at the Inns of Court, adjacent to Barbon's newest and most unauthorized get-rich-quick building scheme, Red Lion Square, objected, that he finally slowed down. A physical altercation broke out between the lawyers and the builders, including Barbon, and somehow the lawyers won. They then had warrants issued against the builders to prevent the construction from proceeding. That, combined with the collapse due to inadequate construction methods of several other Barbon projects, meant that Barbon was effectively stopped from developing any further. But that hardly bothered Barbon at all. By then, he had made sufficient money to take an interest in insurance. In 1680 and 1681, he and 11 of his partners offered fire insurance to 5,000 brick-and-frame houses in London. So successful and profitable were the insurers that numerous other firms jumped on the fire and property insurance bandwagon, chasing their own fortunes. Many of these new fire insurance companies took a dim view of actual fire, as you might expect. To mitigate its effects, and to save themselves having to pay out more than they absolutely had to, the insurance companies began employing their own private firefighting forces. Subscribers to a particular company's insurance would receive a plaque they could hang on the insured building. In the event of a fire, a number of these private fire brigades would turn up at the scene and then... do nothing, unless the burning house had their particular company's plaque on it. Otherwise, they just stood there and made sure the fire didn't spread to any houses in the area that did have their plaque on it. And houses with no plaque at all were almost completely ignored. Unless, of course, sir or madam would like to take advantage of our new policy we just happen to have on offer at this very moment for an extremely limited time. For quite a reasonable sum. So basically, Crassus all over again. Fortunately, it didn't take long for folks to realize why this wasn't such a hot idea. Or perhaps too hot an idea. In any case, the insurance companies quickly got together and decided that for the benefit of everyone involved, it was far better to pool their resources and establish continually staffed locations throughout the city that were well equipped with all the latest gear, who then made it a point to respond to every fire in their area and attempt to extinguish them all. Overall, it meant fewer losses to any one company and less chance of having to pay out in full for a complete loss of property. And so, the modern municipal fire brigade was launched, thanks to risk-adverse insurance companies. And thanks to Benjamin Franklin in colonial America, property insurance became popular. But in Franklin's view, 
it wasn't enough to simply offer insurance to anyone who came along looking for it. No, as far as he was concerned, some risks were too great and no insurance should cover them. In particular, he noted how wooden framed and poorly constructed houses were much more likely to be a total loss in case of fire. So his handily named company, the Philadelphia Contribution Ship for Insurance of Houses from Lost by Fire, simply refused to insure them. Not only that, he expected the property owners to take some responsibility in helping to protect the insured structures. Certain standards had to be maintained in order to maintain the insurability of a property. Franklin's company, soon followed by others, would inspect the locations and instruct the owners about certain fire hazards and how to prevent them. And we've certainly had our share of encounters with fire over the years. Two separate July 4ths were very exciting for all the wrong reasons for us. But fortunately, the fire departments involved were responsible and very capable. And in neither instance did they try to sell us insurance on the spot, nor offer to buy our property at a ridiculously low rate, for which we are grateful. And certainly, this latest spate of wildfires, evacuations, skies filled with smoke, and loss of house, home, and life is a stark reminder of what is at risk. But with the invention of property insurance, and the development of dedicated municipal firefighting forces staffed by competent, worthy people, that risk can be mitigated. And there's nothing crass about that at all. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week, and thank you even more for being patient with the delay in getting it out to you. And one more thanks to all of you who sent kind words and encouragement while we scrambled around last week. It was very much appreciated. That's it for today. Look for a new episode in just a few days to get us back on schedule. And thanks again. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. When you've been in marketing as long as I have, you'll know that before any new product can be developed, it has to be properly researched. I mean, yes, yes, we've got to find out what people want from fire. I mean, how do they relate to it? I mean, do people want fire that can be fitted nasally?